Personal conviction is really fascinating to me. I remember that in high school, uh, my class's Amnesty International Club, they gave a presentation on why its members were convicted that they should buy from thrift stores and not buy new clothes from large brands because of the ethical issues around how clothes are made. And once uh, a friend told me that he was convicted by the Holy Spirit to throw away all his board game stuff because it had become a sort of idol in his life and He tossed out hundreds of dollars worth of stuff because of this conviction. When I see people being compelled forward into action because of their beliefs, it it really sticks in my mind. In these cases, I think it's because they felt strongly about something that I found really admirable. Maybe even because it was something that I know I don't always have the strength to do myself. These are convictions that I find positive, and if anything, they spur me on to think more deeply about the very issues that they bring up. However, what happens when your convictions begin to bump up against other people in a way that can cause conflict? When I was a young kid, I remember this very specific story that that had to do with video games. Uh, Video games were a huge thing for me when I was a kid. I had this old Nintendo Entertainment System that was in some ways the center of my playtime activity. And I remember, you know, being so excited when we'd head out to rent movies from Blockbuster uh, because it also meant we could rent new video games for my Nintendo. But one Christmas, my parents got me some of my very own games, and they were pretty much all I could play. And one night, my parents went out for dinner, and so they hired a babysitter. And the babysitter was a really sweet younger woman, and I remember her being very kind to us. However, when it came to video games, this younger woman had some strong convictions. I plopped down in front of the TV, and I began to play one of my favorites. It was a classic video game called Mega Man. And I played for a while with no issues... However, when my babysitter noticed what I was doing, she was shocked. She said, what is this? And I said, it's Mega Man. Don't, don't you know who Mega Man is? And her response was, was clear as day. She said, well, I don't know who Mango Man is, but you are not playing this video game. It's far too violent. Now, for clarity, uh, graphics back then were hardly realistic. And if by violent, she meant that a small block of blue pixels would shoot smaller yellow pixels at robots and make them disappear, then yes, this was essentially the equivalent to Die Hard in terms of early 1990s video game violence. So I was shocked because my parents never had a problem with the game. I never had a problem with the game. In fact, there are actually some games my parents wouldn't let me play because they were, in my, you know, in my opinion, actually violent. But for whatever reason, this babysitter had some strong feelings about a thing that didn't bother me at all. And the funniest part in retrospect that was because you couldn't always save your game progress in old games, uh, we made this deal that she would let me keep the game running so I wouldn't lose my progress, but instead she made me put a blanket over the television so I couldn't see the violence. (laughs) Now, obviously, this is a more lighthearted example, but the things that Paul's exploring in Romans, in our Romans reading from today, have a more serious life-altering implication. In verse 5 and 6, he says, One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. 
So clearly the early Roman church was having some potential quarrels about how to live life based on convictions that, that Paul wanted to address. But within this explanation, Paul already begins to explain that those personal convictions that parts of the church have about the meat and about the days of uh, sacredness don't need to be lines that are drawn in the sand. He continues and says, for none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. For those of us who choose to follow Christ, he is above our lives and the way we live them. And so in many ways that should convict and in many ways that should also free us as well. And I'm glad actually that we're reading this verse in our series on Romans because we're in a culture that divides over every little thing and practically anything. I've seen convictions get weaponized more times than I can count, and that causes splits and causes dissension and causes anger, causes violence, even in some cases. And I'm imagining these specific issues that Paul's writing about, about the holy days and the eating of meat, and I'm imagining them in our modern context, and I can't help but feel that they would become issues in which people today would probably get canceled for, in fact, I know would get canceled for. But this is a verse of exhortation toward unity. And unity was critical for the early church because without it, the harshness of life in the Roman Empire would have destroyed the community of God. Much of Paul's writings exhort the various early churches to be united, to be of one heart and mind, and to love one another well. I'm sure for all of us, there are a variety of different issues or ideas, convictions or preferences that we may be willing to debate over. But outside of the core issues and commands of our faith, there is always that cornucopia of secondary issues that often get made into main issues, which have only served in many situations to split and schism. So what are our convictions that we may need to re-examine in light of what Paul is asking us to aim for when it comes to community life and unity? To be clear, I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't have convictions, and I'm not suggesting that there are no boundaries and guidelines for us as Christians. But where may we be holding judgment in our hearts about those convictions in a way that doesn't honor another person? So Paul continues in the verse and he says, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Paul finalizes by exhorting the church in Rome with a quote from Isaiah 45, 23, and he challenges them on their judgment towards brothers and sisters. As much as we might like to think that we aren't judgmental people, I want to challenge you to really think about that for a moment. How many times have we held up a lens to another believer and made a value judgment on their faith or their convictions? How many times have we taken an internal tally towards a brother or sister because of their convictions? How many times have we boasted, maybe out loud, about how we've made obvious strides in something over another person or criticized someone openly for their perceived lackings? I think if we kept our radar up for these sorts of things, we'd be surprised how often we actually make these value judgments on others. What Paul is correcting is the same thing that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 7, verses 3 and 5. Jesus says, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eyes, but do not notice the log in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Trying to take the log out of your own eye is a lifelong affair. It never ends because this side of Christ's return, it will continue to be part of our human nature to judge based on all sorts of human criteria. When one log gets removed, we may yet find another one. But the real trick here is not to necessarily give up our convictions about certain things, but instead to reorient them to be about our love for God. Instead of holding up a yardstick to yourself and then to another person, it's actually to throw that yardstick out, turn toward the Lord and say, I do this in honor of you. We should never be doing these things because we can lord it over another person or because it helps us feel superior or look better. In our culture, I've found... It's not enough that we simply do something because we feel convinced of it or convicted by it. It also becomes about wielding it like a bludgeon against those that don't match up to our expectations and behavior. I don't know if you've noticed this, but convictions never seem to be just personal anymore for people. They become public. Whereas we as Christians have the Lord as our object of devotion and conviction, the world has idols and false gods to use as measurements of goodness or righteousness. But the gods of this world are hungry gods who are never satiated, and they demand more and more of us until we are swallowed up whole. This is one reason I think why culture never seems to have any grace or forgiveness for anyone. It's because there is always a pound of flesh that is demanded. And usually it's not just a pound. People want to see the whole person destroyed in many cases. When a celebrity or a person messes up in the public eye, just look at any comment section on social media and you'll see some of the harshest judgments cast, which in many cases seem to far outweigh the perceived crime in the first place. I recently read a book called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, and the author, Justin Brierley, who is a, uh, uh, who's been the host of the TV show, or I guess I should say podcast now, uh, unbelievable. He, he's written a book about this wave of belief that has sprung up in the aftermath of the new atheism movement, which was so popular in recent history, and talks about how a lot more people are actually coming back into faith and how some intellectuals are actually exploring faith. And so he shows how many people are actually journeying back into belief and away from scientism and materialism and skepticism. And he ends his book talking about ways that the church in the West should be attentive when it comes to welcoming this wave of people into the church. And I really like this one point that he made. It was my favorite out of the three that he made. He said, one of his points is create a community that counters cancel culture. And he goes on to say this, the church needs to be a place of countercultural grace in a polarized, moralistic, and unforgiving society. Grace is the antidote to cancel culture and people are desperate for it. Perhaps the greatest witness the church can offer society is that even when we disagree, we can still love each other. And I would agree with that statement. I think that by modeling love and grace in the midst of disagreement, we can say and show that there is something different about the way of Jesus when it comes to our convictions. We do, however, live in a world where there are many people living in ways that we know are not compatible or appropriate for a Christian. But those things aside, we should take to heart what Paul is saying here and do some investigation of our own hearts and minds when it comes to judgment or contempt for another person, especially another Christian. 
It not only speaks a witness to those within the church, but it speaks a witness and story to those outside the church or those who are standing in the doorway, peering in at the life of the church. And sadly, we fall short of this ideal in all sorts of ways, myself, uh, very included. But upon reflection, there have been times where I was judgmental towards someone because of their convictions or because of the choices they made. And this is not right. It is not the heart of Christ. In those places and times, it's for us to turn to repentance and to seek to release judgment to God alone. My hope and prayer for us as a community is that we would really take this verse in Romans to heart, especially in light of the cancel culture, which we all see and know. When I talk with friends about big, heavy issues, there is so much fear and trepidation in them to have those conversations because people are really afraid to say the quote-unquote wrong thing or to have convictions that culture or even others would say are quote-unquote wrong. And for how much our culture really loves safe spaces, a lot of people don't feel safe at all to make mistakes or be themselves. I was specifically talking with a friend a little while ago, and they were expressing to me just how crazy things have gotten in that now they feel they can't have dialogue with anyone for fear of losing a friendship. And I think that points out that relationships are so needed and valued in these circumstances. And because of that, the church has a super amazing opportunity here to welcome new people in and to share the love and truth of Christ with people by simply letting them come as they are without fear of being judged or canceled. And the point, after all, is not to show up as you are and just stay that way forever. We are called and challenged to be changed in the journey of faith, but we need to have patience for this. It is a marathon, not a sprint. When Jesus called Simon and Andrew on the shore to come and follow him in the Gospel of Matthew, he simply said, follow me. He didn't say, follow me as long as you make sure to do all this other stuff, or follow me as long as you hold all these convictions at the right at this very moment. Jesus called these brothers with the full intention that they would learn and grow, that they would make mistakes, that they would have convictions that might even be wrong or be a problem. In fact, the apostles at times definitely had strong convictions about things. However, Jesus had patience with them. He walked with them. He corrected them, and he even rebuked them in certain circumstances. They didn't have everything figured out right away, and that should be a relief to us in the church as we engage with one another and with folks who are curious or entering the church for the first time. This is an uncomfortable place to be in because it is a place of not yet. It's a place that requires serious trust in God and trust in his process for each one of us. And it also requires us to be more concerned with our own selves than policing or critiquing others. We are, after all, the Amazon.com culture. We want stuff in a day or two. And patience and waiting makes our skin kind of itch. But that is reality. Not every brother or sister is going to see eye to eye with us on every issue, no matter how much we believe that issue has a bearing on the depth or strength of a healthy faith life. That image that Paul calls forward from Isaiah is actually the right one, that we ultimately stand at the foot of the throne of God, his judgment seat, all needing to give an account for ourselves. Essentially, none of us are truly making final judgments on one another. God is making final judgments over all of us. When we stop looking to our right and our left at other people and instead look forward with those same people at the throne of God, we get the true perspective for how judgment works. <laughs>